Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hi there, it's Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces. Creating peace in families is how I lost my voice. From the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. I wrote the book on divorce, or I wrote a book on divorce. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. That book became a bestseller because it presented another option for ending a marriage, one that doesn't necessarily include lawyers and one that leaves more money in both parties' bank accounts and less animosity in their hearts. We created It's Over Easy, the one-stop breakup divorce resource online with the same principles in mind. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, and welcome to the Sunny Side Up Report. Zhao Shang Hao. Oh, Jesus. I'm Laura Wasser um, of the Divorce Sucks Podcast, and this is my Asian friend. <laughs> That's good morning in Chinese. Oh, of course it is. Look at Jeff. <laughs> okay, Johnny. Wait, wait, wait. Chinese is not a language. There's Mandarin and Cantonese. Yes, Mandarin. 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 That okay. is good morning in Mandarin Chinese. Okay, Johnny. Yes. Stop drinking. I'm, I'm a world citizen. All right. The Sunny Side Up Report is where... My Mandarin friend Johnny and I talk about things that happen in the world of divorce and breakups online. And so here is my favorite story yes. from the past week. This is on my Kiss nine five one or iHeart.com. Oh yeah. Um, this is something I really thought only existed in the movies. A woman in Australia was offered money by her fiance's parents to leave him. The relationship wow. was far from perfect anyway, and she saw the money as a perfect out. Apparently they offered her twenty thousand dollars. She asked for thirty, and when they agreed, she took it. I love this story. You're always saying how these relationships are bargains, right? Yes, yes. She she lucked out. And by the way, Jeremy's very well-off parents always thought he should be with a, quote, nice middle-class girl Hmm. and shared that they thought she trapped her son into getting pregnant. Jeremy's dad eventually offered her $20,000 to, quote, release Jeremy. She realized this, that this was her get-out-of-jail-free card and said to him, make it 30 and you've got a deal. I mean, these people had a baby, too. <laughs> That's crazy. It's so crazy. Anyway, um, yeah, a week later, she told Jeremy she was leaving, and a few weeks after that, he returned to England to be with his family. As for the new mom, she took that money, put a deposit on an apartment for her and her daughter. Hmm. Courtesy of the grandparents, she'll probably never meet again. <laughs> Well, let's wish them all the best. I love we? this culture. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was actually in Australia, though, so can't even blame the land down dumb under. Americans. Um, here's another one from NewYorkPost.com. New York City spends an obscene amount on engagement rings. What is obscene amount we're of gonna money? Find what out. Is that? We're going to find out. This is an article by Dean Balsamini um, from the beginning of December. Manhattan ladies are twice as lucky in love, or at least the size of their engagement rings, as their outer borough counterparts. Hmm. The average Manhattan height drops $13,378 to put out a ring in it, Whoa. while lovebirds in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx and Staten Island spend only six grand, which still beats the national average of $5,764, according to data from the wedding planner website, The Knot. Let me ask you a question. In your experience, you know, of, of being a divorce attorney, do you find that 
the more money that people have spent on their wedding rings, the more or less likely they are to get divorced? Or is there any, any correlation? Yes. I think the more money they spend on engagement rings, the more likely they are to get divorced. Mm-hmm. But that's just me being cynical. I don't know if that's true. I think I think it obviously has a lot to do with how much people make. And there used to be an old formula that it should be a certain amount of right. months of salary right. or something like that. I um, think it was like... like- Three months' salary for a one. I think something yeah, like ring. that. I, and and it's interesting. Manhattan couples will go on to spend more money on their weddings too. The, the average there is seventy six thousand nine hundred forty four dollars. Then it costs for a. That's more than a year at NYU, which is sixty nine thousand nine hundred eighty four. You know, we keep hearing about how millennials are not getting married as often, but the ones who are, well, they're, they're still they're, spending a yeah, lot of money. But that, may, that may be one of the reasons why they're not getting married because they can't afford the, too to much. buy a ring, especially if they live in New York. What do you got? Well, <laughs> I don't even know how to segue, but in the news, Tony Braxton reveals lupus condition contributed to divorce, admits she was angry about paying alimony. We've all all heard about Tony Braxton's financial woes, but we did not know, or I didn't know, that she suffered from lupus, which is a really debilitating condition, and, and it's unfortunate. Like she says here in an Inquisitor.com article, while she was in the hospital, there were times when her husband didn't come to visit her because she was sick, and she thinks that that contributed to their divorce. But what's interesting about their divorce is that they actually dated after they got divorced and tried to get back together. Apparently, it didn't work, but let's hope she's feeling better. Yes. From our friends at Refinery29, we have from Leah Spellman an article, What I've Learned About Dating Post-Divorce. And it's some of the stuff that has come up on Sarah Jessica Parker's uh, show, Divorce, which airs Sundays at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Five things I've learned about dating after a divorce. One, it's normal to be nervous, but don't forget to be excited. Hmm. Two, Dating, like any skill, takes practice. Three, it's up to you to decide what you want to reveal and when. And this has to do with what they call the divorce bomb. I mean, I definitely think it's worth noting in a first date or even on the online introduction that you've been divorced, been married before, whatever. But you definitely don't want to be one of those people that talks about your divorce throughout the entire date because there probably won't be another one. (laughs) Good Um, advice. Exactly. And four, here's one. This is, again, this is, it's been a while since I was out on the dating circuit. You are going to get ghosted. Don't take it personally. Do you know what ghosting I is? I do. It's, it's, and it's actually, not sexual, Johnny. No, I okay. get that. And, and unlike DTF, I do <laughs> know what ghosting means. And it sucks. And I, but I do think If I got ghosted, I would take it personally. Well, I, I was, was going to say, it, it does suck. And I think that it's terrible. Another bad element about living in 2018. No, because I definitely want to continue running into people after I've had a terrible date with them, not not being ghosted by them. And then finally, number five, don't be afraid to break your own rules. And here's the quote, divorce sucks, which we know because hey. we have a podcast that has that very name. And it's easy to put up barriers to prevent getting hurt again, not texting someone first after a date, not opening up early on, not getting your hopes up, not stepping outside your comfort zone. But the key to dating after divorce is making sure you put yourself out there and don't close yourself off to potentially great people and experiences more than anything else you this is your opportunity to represent and recreate yourself if for nobody else then for you 
So get Absolutely. out there and check it out. And again, break some of your own rules. Do things that you wouldn't have done last time around. Find out who you are and what you're about. This is this is your chance. Some people that have gotten divorced have said to me, I think it was actually my get out of jail free card. I got a whole new do over to be me and put myself out there. Well, it's also these days, it's cool to be friends with your ex or at least to co-parent with them amicably. And you could take a page from the world of hip hop culture. Cardi B and Offset have a romance rewind. Uh, and in case you don't know, Cardi B is that like great. I know who Cardi B is. Cool. Well, do you know who Offset is? I do. Her, oh. her ex husband slash baby daddy. Exactly. They were very married very briefly. Very correct, briefly. And broke up. She's, didn't she just have a it baby? Was, yeah, she did. But these you know, kids today. Well, you know how it is. This is my whole point: is that they had the baby. They agree that they're going to co-parent. They are amicable about it. Um, he did suppo- allegedly want to have a three-way with rapper Cuba doll and a woman named Summer Bunny. So I can kind of understand why Cardi might have said no way. Oh, I thought that was them getting along amicably. Well, that's, that's I mean, amicable. it was a, a three-way, not a four-way, so I don't think she was invited. Oh. Um, but she did say, <laughs> we got a lot of love for each other, but things just haven't been working out between us for a long time, and it's nobody's fault. It might take time to get a divorce, and I'm going to always have a lot of love for him because he is my daughter's father. Go Cardi. Well done. Anyway, that's yeah. it for the, the Sunny Side Up report. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Bye, America. We all work hard. That's why when the season of giving comes around, you have to remember to cross your own name off first. To make it easy on you, I've already got the perfect idea. It's called FabFitFun, and it's a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. The winter box is fantastic. It retails for $49.99, but it always has a value of well over $200. The box has skincare from Glam Glow, Kate Somerville, Dr. Brandt, Anthropology, and Juice Beauty. Fashion items from Vince Camuto, Bear Paw, Free People, Michael Stars, and Trina Turk, and Millie. Beauty products from Tarte, Moroccan Oil, Beauty Blender, Oscar Blondie, and Zoya. That winter box is available now, but sign up fast because they sell out like that. Believe me, you really won't want to miss this box. The things that I liked when I got my winter box were these really yummy over-the-knee socks. There's an amazing blanket and some really, really good Kate Somerville moisturizer, which helps if I have to be flying back and forth to New York to do podcasts. This winter box is amazing. Start the giving off right. Check out www.fabfitfun.com and use the code DIVORCE at checkout to save another $10 off your first box, making it only $39.99. Again, that's fabfitfun.com. Use the code DIVORCE and get a value of over $200 for $39.99. Remember, ladies, you deserve to treat yourself this holiday season. FabFitFun. Today's episode of Divorce Sucks is dedicated to the kids of divorcing parents. In my practice as a divorce attorney for over 25 years, I've heard countless parents say, my kids come first. It's all I care about is the kids. However, I've seen some adults act more like children than their own kids, and this can have a detrimental effect on everyone in the family, especially the kids. Growing up, as we all know, is difficult enough, and so is divorce, which is one of the identified adverse childhood experiences associated with an increased risk for anxiety disorders and other deleterious outcomes. It doesn't have to be that way. And in today's episode of Divorce Sucks, we're joined by the experts in the field of child psychology to get tips for the best ways to communicate and co-parent around divorce and the anxiety it can cause in our children. 
And hopefully, by understanding some of the psychological side effects of divorce on kids, you might think twice about how you involve your children in your own divorce. My guests today are Dr. John Piancentini, who in addition to his role as director of the UCLA Center for Child Anxiety Resilience and Support, is a professor in the UCLA Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and the director of the UCLA Child OCD Anxiety and Tick Disorders Program. And child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Patricia Lester, co-director of the UCLA, the Center for Child Anxiety Resilience and Support, a.k.a. UCLA Care Center. Welcome to the Divorce Sex Podcast, John and Patricia. Can I call you guys John and Patricia? That's fine. Is that cool? You can call me Laura, too, (laughs) supposedly like Ms. Wasser. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to be here and talk about divorce and children. In addition to what you've said here, I direct um, the Child OCD Anxiety Disorders Clinic, which you, which you said. So we um, provide psychotherapy and medication to kids. And we see a lot of kids that are coming through um, that either going th- where the parents are going through a divorce, contemplating a divorce, or having gone through a divorce. So we, can, we do deal with this issue on a pretty regular basis. And Patricia, tell us a little bit about you from your words. Great to be here, Laura. Um, I, in addition to uh, what you highlighted, I also am the medical director for the Stress, Trauma, and Resilience Clinic at UCLA. And we see families and kids together um, facing a a variety of stressors, including divorce, and often work on co-parenting and parenting uh, interventions and therapy to help support them manage those transitions. And in addition to that, I, I work uh, broadly with a large resilience program helping uh, families who go through a variety of separations and stressors. Um, and we do that for the U.S. military, but also here in Los Angeles County in LAUSD um, and other systems of care. I just, I love that you guys are doing this just for our audience. I, I met John and Patricia at a gathering that we had at my friends Laura and Casey Wasserman's house for CARES to kind of get people um, introduced to what they're doing at UCLA and how these anxiety disorders that children have come from a myriad of of places, whether, again, like you said, Patricia, in the U.S. military, if people are getting shipped overseas and they don't see kids for a long time, or if parents are having conflict in the home, which then leads to a separation, and, and really addressing these anxiety issues and how we can help our children through these times. And so um, one of the things I, I, I would imagine is the case, but I want to ask you guys whether anxiety disorders are more common in children of divorce? Well, we see um, a a fair amount of anxiety in children of divorce. Um, But anxiety is pretty common just in the general population. About 12 to 15 percent of kids are going to have an anxiety disorder um, that's associated with distress or interference, which would actually meet criteria for a diagnosis. But among kids that are going through divorce, um, either before, during, or after, uh, it can lead to a lot of stress and anxiety, a lot of changes and unpredictability. So we do see anxious reactions quite commonly. Um, Kids that um, have anxiety disorders before the divorce are more likely to continue or worsen with their anxiety. Children that may not have, have been anxious before the divorce may show an anxious reaction, anxious symptoms, avoidance, clinging, 
uh, for reasons that we can talk about. Um, but it, they don't necessarily stay anxious for long periods of time after the divorce. And from what you guys have seen, again, we won't hold you to this. I'm just curious because you see a lot. Is there an age for kids that's better? Is it? I mean, obviously, when they're super little, probably it's easier because that's all they remember. But is there an age in terms of adolescence, early childhood that they seem to adjust more easily? I think that's a tough question because the research is conflicted um, in terms of following kids over time. I think what's most important is for parents to be aware that there's expectable reactions to stress when a child's routines are changed, when caregiving arrangements are changed. And that what I think is perhaps the most helpful way to think about it is we know what to expect from an infant, from a toddler, preschooler, from a school-aged child, and from an adolescent. Lesson. In addition to anxiety across developmental periods, we may see a, a whole array of, of behaviors. For instance, um, a toddler may have developmental regressions. Maybe they were sleeping independently or maybe they were toilet trained. And that with stress, sometimes we see those things fall away, but then they come back um, after a period of stress and kind of re-equilibrium in the family. So I, I don't think there's an ideal time to go through a divorce. I think what most important is just how parents come together and manage that around their parenting routines and co-parenting strategies. I think the other thing to think about, it's, it's a little bit hard to talk in generalities. Sure. I mean, again, as, as, as Patricia said, the research is a little bit mixed. It really depends on the individual child, the individual family, and the, and the situation. Do, have you guys seen in your research that boys and girls deal with it differently, deal with anxiety differently? Um, there's a little there's a little bit of difference. There's some some research that shows this, and we see this in our clinic as well to some extent. That girls tend to be more internalizing, so more symptoms of anxiety or depression or withdrawal. Boys may be a little bit more likely to act out. Got it. So school problems um, and, and and acting out in different kinds of ways. And again, these are all generalities, guys, but certainly this is something that these folks have seen and research shows, although it gets a little blurry sometimes. How do you work with schools when a couple is getting divorced? And I, I often tell clients, I think you need to tell the teacher, maybe the school administrator, so that if they notice that there's a change in the child's behavior in class, they, they know what to look for. Is that something you recommend? And how and when does that generally do you recommend for the family to speak with the school administration? I think one of the most important things is for the therapist to, with the parent's permission, talk with the school about how a child's doing in school, particularly if a parent's brought a child to a therapist around concerns um, for particular behaviors. And then I think parents need to make a plan around what, what they want to disclose and how they disclose it and probably involve the child in that plan, depending on the age for a school age or adolescent child. Uh, I, I think that anticipating what may come, what kinds of changes um, that will occur in the child, for the teacher to be aware that a kid's acting out behaviors or stress or withdrawal from class or maybe academic fall off may be due to stressors that are um, kind of outside their control would be really important. So I think you do want to enlist the school as part of the team, right. the support team for the child, and to do that in a way that the family feels comfortable with the amount of information that they're giving. And I don't know if you guys get this question a lot. I do. And I and I don't know that I'm qualified to answer it, so I would be interested to hear what you have to say. And, and when couples come to me and say, we're going to get divorced, 
how do we tell the kids? How should we tell them? Again, and I believe that they're asking this because they want to alleviate, minimize anxiety. Any good words of wisdom? And again, case by case, folks, keep that in mind. Every family is going to be different. But is are there some kind of rules of thumb that you that you instruct or that you advise people, clients, patients? Well, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. That, that's a really hard question. Again, it depends on the individual situation. But what we're going to be looking for talking to the parents about is how much do the kids know about what's going on at home with the parents? I mean, oftentimes the kids may be the least surprised right. people in the family right. about this. Um, but we want to make sure that it's done in a way that it's sensitive, that it's not frightening to the kids. And we certainly wouldn't want to spring it on the kids. Right. So in cases where there's a lot of conflict or, or issues or the parents have grown apart and the kids are probably aware of it, it's a little bit easier. In cases where the kids may be unaware or very young children, um, it can be a little more difficult. And then it has to be done in a very kind of a predictable way. One of the big things that we, we ask the parents to avoid or try to help the parents is blaming one parent or yes. the other. And we may be getting to that, I assume. <laughs> um, but just trying to do it in a calm and predictable way. And together? Um, it can be, yeah. Okay. It, de- it depends on the situation, but um, but oftentimes that we would recommend that, unless it's a very highly conflicted situation, right. then we then we might say. No. It also depends on the age of the child. Sure, I, I had had one couple that I was working with in mediation, and they had not told the kids, and for months they had gone back and forth about how they were going to tell the kids, and one party was just intent that if we tell the kids, I'm telling them it's your fault. You cheated on me. They need to know why. They're going to ask why. I want to, and, mm-hmm. and the other party said we can't do that. That's not right. I said I don't. I don't think that is. When they finally told their children, and they did it in a very kind of vanilla way, this is happening. We want you guys. All three of the kids looked at them and said, "Oh, thank God, we've been waiting forever for this." And they said, "Really?" And the kids said, "Yeah, you guys doesn't even seem like you like each other. We're so glad that you're telling us together and that this is actually happening. Where, where are you moving, Dad?" And the dad said, "Well, I, I, I don't know yet, but it was really kind of funny." That they were so, you know, they were so anxious about this and the kids were actually rather relieved. That probably doesn't happen often. Um, I think probably some kids, I imagine you see in your practice, are have tons of anxiety about their parents splitting up, even if their parents have no intention of splitting up. Is that something that comes up a lot with, with youth? Yeah, we do see that. And there's um, there are the number of different anxiety Diagnoses that we give. One is called generalized anxiety disorder, and that I think I have that. <laughs> and as the name suggests, these are kids and adults that are worried about everything: everything right. finances, money, or mom and dad getting a divorce. Am I going to be get to school on time? Is the world going to blow up? Um, everything, and that that's not an uncommon symptom or fear for kids that do have these more generalized worries to have. Sometimes there's a kernel of truth there. Sometimes it's completely out of the blue. Right. My eight-year-old said to me the other day, I am so glad you were never married to dad. And I said, why is that? And he said, because I don't have to worry about you guys getting divorced. I said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> we split up when he was two, so he really hasn't known anything different. And at least in that arena, he's pretty well adjusted. Laura, I yes. think I just wanted to go back to the communication issue, because I think that for very young children, you know, for parents to think through what kind of information they can digest yes. when they're three, four, five years old needs to be really simple and concrete and not 
too much information. This not is true. prostitutes. With, we don't want to mention the prostitutes right. with the two-year-old. Yes, no. I think okay. what you want to do is make it an open conversation and give uh, basic outlines of what's happening, and then let the child come and ask further questions. They'll go off and process a little bit, and right. then they'll come back and they'll have more questions. And you want to make it so that that dialogue is possible. I think children, like the children in the example you just gave, often know way more than their parents give them credit for. They they kind of hold a f- open family secret, as it were. And um, when once it's put on the table and they're able to talk about it, it's such an opportunity for the family to be able to correct misunderstandings they may have, or maybe feeling like they're to blame or it's their fault. This is a this is a great chance to have a dialogue as a family. So if parents can come together and do it together, I think that would be ideal. I, I yeah. agree. And the other the other point on that is um, one of the most terrifying things for anxious individuals, children and adolescents or adults, is uncertainty. You know, anxiety, because if there's uncertainty, then you're always, the anxious mind goes to assuming the worst is going to happen. And that's one of the big questions that these kids have is what is going to happen? What does this mean? You know, who's going to live where? Do we have money? How do I act? What do I do? Am I supposed to like dad now or not like mom or whatever it is? So these are just to follow up on on what Patricia said, really making sure that the kids understand here the nuts and boltsy types of issues that are how this is going to affect your life and doing everything that the parents can do to make sure that it has as minimum of an impact as possible. They'll they'll be thinking, who's going to take care of me? Right. Are you going to be there for me? And so as much as parents can do to maintain consistency and set those expectations and then keep them very predictable in a child's life, um, I think that is what really helps grow resilience in terms of managing stressful life events. On that note, what do you folks think about nesting? The idea where the kids kind of stay in the house and the parents Mm. move out. And again, this is general. You don't have to. I mean, because we are hearing a lot about that in my practice. I've always felt that that probably doesn't work for long term, although I've read stories and heard about, you know, families that do that long term. I always thought that was better for like a one year to 18 month kind of Mm. transition period. Any thoughts on it? Well, I think if it goes to the goals of parents collaborating, maintaining routines and predictability, I think if everybody's on board with it and it doesn't generate a lot of conflict, I I could see that for parents it might generate a fair amount of stress um, not being able to move on or have their own independent life. And I think parent well-being is a really important factor in the long run. And so I think you have to weigh that. And I, I, I guess I would take it one case at a time. What do you think? John. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it um, in the short term, it may make sense. I mean, you know, kids having to move back and forth between parents, especially when parents may live farther away or especially when there's still active conflict, can, right. be, can be really difficult on the kids. It can be pretty hard on the kids, disruptive. So it's a transition perhaps, but I agree long term, it probably would interfere with the family's abilities to move to move on. And, I mean, I've always maintained if you're not happy in a relationship and you've grown apart, it's not healthy for a couple to stay together. Is it is it better for kids to see two happy parents, even if they're not living in the same home, than two unhappy parents living under the same roof? Well, I think the research supports what your observation is that if there is a high amount of conflict uh, in a marriage, that it's, it's actually... 
when those families go through a divorce, kids do better in the long run as long as the conflict uh, diminishes after the resolution of the marriage. So I think that's the important thing is trying to reduce the amount of toxic stress level for the children and really give them coping strategies and families to have whole coping strategies to manage this. So I think your instinct is correct. And I do feel that once the divorce is resolved, the legal part of it, the financial part of it is done and the dust settles, the parents generally do get along so much better, which then enable the kids to get along mm-hmm. so much better. That's why at It's Over Easy, we kind of do a dual approach. We do the legal part and the financial part and try to get that out of the way, that transactional part of it. Mm-hmm. And then I do believe that even though we're called It's Over Easy, it's not over easy. And people have a lot of work to do in terms of grieving and transitioning and learning and forgiving and then restarting. And that's where we really send them to you, mental health professionals. Professionals. When you see families, is it better for them to have separate therapists together? How does that usually work? I always wonder how to navigate who we're referring to and for what. Well, we do that assessment when we uh, work with families I, I, and make decisions about how we want to engage in developing parenting skills in the context of divorce or co-parenting. Some parents aren't able to do that together. It, very often it's helpful to have a similar uh, approach and to go through a similar therapy, but with a different therapist so that it is in parallel, I right. think. And, and do, the, do the therapists speak? Yes, okay. I think that is better Everyone's if the parents the are working page. together and they're kind of working on the same skills at the same time or developing a family plan that can be pulled across. Um, it could be the same therapist. I, I just think it depends a little bit on the marriage and, and the family. Right. Yeah, we want to avoid forcing the kids to be in a therapy session with two parents that are fighting. They're still yes, arguing. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. That, that makes sense to me. Couples counseling gets many couples back together, but not all and not always. I always recommend it and often insist on it in my practice because I want to make sure people have really given an opportunity to say what they have to say, figure out if there's a fix for the situation, and then if there's not, pivot in a direction that will allow them to co-parent if they've got children and communicate, as you were saying, whatever the structure is, whether it's two, whether it's one, whether it's separate ones for the kids. Um, Wondering what you guys do if you find that one or both parents really just seem to enjoy the conflict. We we see that on occasion. Um, it It can be difficult to reconcile. So... When we're working with the kids, I mean, you know, we are working with them to help them change the things that we can change. Uh, sometimes you can change. And we do have kids, that anxious kids. Again, the kids that we see in our clinic all have some kind of an anxiety disorder. So we're working from that, from that base. And it can be very stressful um, for them to go to see a parent where there is a lot of conflict or chaos or, again, bad-mouthing the other the other parent, it can be difficult, but oftentimes these these kids are mandated right. to do to do the visit. So in those cases, we're going to help them um, teach them how to cope, coping mechanisms, and how to manage. If we can't change a parent, we try, you know, to work with the parent. If that doesn't work, it's really just helping the kids 
cope. And do you believe sometimes they can come out stronger for it, having grown up with... I mean, I say all the time, like, this, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Dealing with some of these jerky parents may actually raise a kid who is able to deal with anxiety when he or she is older in relationships, in the workplace. I, I think there's always a cost. I mean, I think these kids do come out stronger in a lot of ways. I mean, that's really what builds resilience. Right. The ability to, you know, to continue and thrive in situations of, of difficulty. But I think it, it, it occasionally will will be a cost. It can be very stressful and it may, you know, solidify different kinds of thought patterns or right. behaviors, you know, like the world is a jaded place right. or what's the point. So it's important to really work with these, these kids in therapy and, and, and teach them how to recognize what belongs to them and what belongs to the parent in terms of some of the issues that are going on. Do you... Have you found that anxiety is nature or nurture, or a little bit of both? A little little bit of both. A little bit of both, yes. Uh And that brings up the other question of, does divorce cause anxiety? Maybe circling back around to that. What we tend to find, and I think just to it's important to reiterate, anxious kids tend to do worse or have more anxiety in, in stress or conflict or change or divorce. Um, and they may have longer problems and need more more help. Kids that aren't anxious, healthy kids for the most part, going through divorce, unless it's really conflicted, um, oftentimes do pretty well. There is a reaction initially, but it's not like the divorce is turning non-anxious kids into anxiety disordered kids right. forever. <laughs> Got it. And I think there are things parents can do proactively, like we were talking about a few of the communication pieces but given the the research that we're seeing on early interventions, not just for kids who may have um, something that rises to the threshold of, of being diagnosed with a disorder or anxiety problem, but probably for all families can benefit from parents having strategies to strengthen the parent-child relationship. There's so many pulls um, to kind of... Uh, throw that relationship and parenting into kind of a disorganized state uh, when you're moving out of a house and you're separating and when a parent's highly stressed themselves that they may be coping with their own anxiety and depression. Given all those pulls, it's hard to maintain consistent parenting. So getting support about doing that and thinking specifically about how to strengthen the parent-child relationship that's matched to the child's age, as well as um, developing co-parenting strategies that are consistent. I think those kinds of things, doing, spending a little time early on doing that can really help prevent. There's a, a pretty strong research base to show that if changes in parent-child relationships, strengthening, um, supporting warmth, su- supporting consistent discipline and, and parenting strategies really have a long-term positive outcome for kids as they age into adulthood. And I think that's knowing that this a little piece in the beginning goes a really long way is something that we could all kind of focus on. Totally. Even in non-divorcing families. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. 
The king of celebrity gossip is now on Podcast One. Kim Kardashian, I think she's nice, but obnoxious and annoying. Check out the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker each week to get your fill on the latest news in show business and beyond. And nothing is off the table. I think he should take her last name when they get married. He's already her She should just be her officially. Check out the Perez Hilton Podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Going through divorce is not easy for either party, but it can have a particularly devastating effect on the children of the parties. I wrote a book on divorce called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, which describes ways in which parents getting divorced can do so without destroying their families in the process. Today on Divorce Sucks, we're talking about how to protect your child's mind and how to help them deal with the psychological impact of divorce. We're honored to have with us this morning renowned child and adolescent psychologist, Dr. John Piacentini. Perfetto. <laughs> Grazie. Director of UCLA Care Center. His work focuses on the development and testing of effective treatments for childhood anxiety and related disorders. John has published over 300 research papers, many in leading medical journals, and he's authored nine books on the subject. Joining us in our conversation about kids' mental health is child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Patricia Lester, co-director of UCLA Care Center. Patricia is also a director at the David Geffen School of Medicine and medical director of the Child and Family Trauma Service. Wow, you guys are very impressive when I read it like that. Since we're speaking about the mental health of school-aged children and adolescents in middle and high school, the first place for some parents to look for support might be with school faculty and administrators. Also, if we have listeners that they don't live near UCLA, but they can't afford single therapists, mental health professionals, are there programs available through schools, uh, local colleges, stuff like that, that people can seek out that deal with the anxiety, particularly when families are splitting apart? Do you know of these? Well, there are a number of community agencies um, for people, for families that really don't have resources. Um, the L.A. County has a number of, of, of clinics available. Um, Both county clinics and also contract agencies like Dee Dee Hirsch. And, um, in Santa Monica, there's St. John's. In Pasadena, there's the Foothill Clinic system. So there's a wide array of public resources. And as you said, a number of the training programs in the community um, also maintain low-cost or sliding-scale resources and therapies. On our CARES website, um, there's actually uh, identified clinics, providers who are, have expertise in treating childhood anxiety in particular, um, so people could go to that and look for those if they're concerned about anxiety in their child. Mm-hmm. Folks, the resources are out there. Look into it, educate yourselves, figure out for yourselves and for your kids. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have the CARES folks on, because I want people to be aware that they're our resources, there are support providers. Please look into it for for the benefit of your family and your kids. I would actually recommend first talking to your pediatrician. Ah. Uh, at UCLA, um, there's actually an embedded uh, mental health program, uh, access to therapists, um, to child psychiatrists, et cetera, for adults too. And I think they're often well-versed in the front line of how to manage these um, kinds of challenges. And they're also really connected to resources sources that might be available to the child that they're seeing. So I I think that would be a great place to start. And a number of the LAUSD schools have school wellness centers attached as well. So talking to the school counselor, if there's a school nurse, can also be a nice resource. 
How do we know if our children are experiencing anxiety? What are some of the signs? And again, I'm sure they're very different, whether it's acting out, whether it's totally, you know, closing up. Are there, you know, if it's not an obvious disrupting in the classroom, for example, or at home? Are there some things that we as parents should be looking for in kids? That's a really good question because anxiety is normal, right? We all have normal anxiety at some point. Um, Anxiety is really nature's car alarm. It keeps us from doing dangerous things. If you hear a dog barking and the fangs showing, you should run away. (laughs) That's that's anxiety. Uh, But it can be problematic and it can be hard to notice because oftentimes one of the first signs of potentially problematic anxiety is avoidance. Mm -hmm. And these are kids that maybe they want to not go to birthday parties, not want to go out, don't want to go play in their soccer game. They want to stay home. They tend to isolate themselves. Uh, Sometimes it's difficulty going to school. Kids that are complaining about being sick in the morning, uh, they don't want to get out of bed. And a good parent, especially a parent that's stressed if they're going through divorce and, you know, a little uncertain about what's going on with their kids, may let them stay home. Uh And oftentimes, you know, giving into this avoidance um, can lead to more avoidance and worsening anxiety. The other things we look for are physical symptoms of anxiety, complaints of stomach aches, of headaches. Sometimes kids even feel faint or feel panicky. And then, you know, crying, you know, tantruming, being afraid. So anxious kids can also act out aggressively. Right. Because if they're if they're put in a situation that might trigger their fears, like having to give a t- report in class or meet, go to a lawyer, go to a therapist, uh, see a relative or somebody that that can be very frightening to them, they may they may tantrum. Um, the other thing that's interesting is anxiety and ADHD, hyperactivity, are kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? But they can be very difficult to tell apart. Yes. And anxious kids are often misdiagnosed with ADHD because. Their overactivity can be fidgeting or restlessness, and their lack of concentration or inattention. It may not be so much they can't pay attention, it's that they're just worried, all the thoughts going through their heads about worrying about the bad things that are going to happen. So what is the threshold for medicating kids that have anxiety? Well, we give anxiety, we would give a diagnosis or recommend treatment for a child where the the anxiety, the anxious symptoms are leading to notable problems. Mm -hmm. So they're impacting school, home, socially. Um, And then we would suggest that these kids receive treatment. The first line treatment is actually cognitive behavior therapy. It's a form of therapy where we teach kids how to recognize their anxious thoughts and feelings. And uh, then we provide them with tools to manage these thoughts and feelings so that they, to reduce their avoidance. Is that like some of the squeezy things that you brought and, uh, and breathing exercises? It can, it can okay. be. It goes beyond that. The primary ingredient is, is exposure, actually gradually exposing them to the things they're anxious of. So it may be if a child is out of school, going to school the last period of the day with right. the squeezies and the breathing right. and then gradually extending the length of the school day. So it, is it important? Again, I, as a parent, I def- I'm asking these questions. You might be like, wow, that's really specific. <laughs> but to push them to really say, I know you don't want to go to this birthday party, but we already committed. We RSVP'd. We bought the present. Let's go for a little while and see how you feel. This happens to me often in my home. And we go. And within 15 minutes, he's having a fantastic time. And then the next time, he doesn't want to go to the next one. I said, remember how much fun you had at so-and-so's party? Let's try it again. But I've had people say, oh, God, I pushed my kid. And I think I pushed them too far. How do we as parents know when to push and when to say, you know what, let's, let's, let's let them stay home from this one? <laughs> um, that's a good question. It really depends on the, on the child. So again, a little bit of anxiety is quite common. 
and a lot of kids are nervous or anticipatory anxiety, a lot of adults as well. But if the child is really tantruming or really, really looks quite upset, then it's probably not a good idea to push too far. Or what you do gradually, we'll go for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, it, after five minutes, I'm going to keep time on my watch. I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you. And you can tell me if you want to stay or not. And if you want to leave, we'll just leave quietly. So you can bite-sized pieces are the best way to do it. Some kids aren't able. Some kids do need treatment first. And if the cognitive behavior therapy isn't getting the child as far as we would like or the child refuses to do the therapy, then we consider medication. And does that medication generally last a lifetime, or is there something you can do a reset and maybe after a certain period of months or years that, that you can ease them off of it? Well, the general recommendation would be that you uh, do the therapy and uh, medication at the same time. Often medications can be helpful in getting a child to a place where they can engage in cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you get the two uh, modalities going and then you have a period of reduced anxiety and a better kind of engagement with their regular uh, uh, kinds of activities, then you would continue the medication for typically the recommendation is six months to a year and then try tapering off of it. I don't think you would want to necessarily, it's not a lifetime commitment right. to medication. Sounds oh. like such an easy fix to me. <laughs> <laughs> now there are people who do need to be treated um, for long periods right. of time and who will relapse when medication is stopped. It's why it's so important to do CBT as well because the research suggests that changes that occur with CBT actually have a more lasting Lasting. effect. What happens when one parent's on board and the other one isn't? We wrote an article that was on our blog called Co-Parenting with an Asshole, and we did have somebody write in about today's interview, and we'll read that in a minute. But what does happen when you have one parent that says, I don't want my kids to do cognitive behavioral therapy, I don't want medication, I don't want to participate in this, she's an asshole, I don't want to have anything to do with her, my kids will be fine, let's just move on. I get them every other week, and let's they're going to have to just deal with it. I dealt with it, and they're going to have to deal with it, too. You know, first of all, we're going to see who has the um, power to make medical decisions. And oftentimes that may be shared. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it, and if it is, we try to talk to the parent that doesn't want to do it and work with the parent and, and educate, educate him or her about the cost of the child's illness, that it really has a negative impact. And we think that the treatment would be very helpful. Sometimes the parents don't want to do it, and they can potentially sabotage the treatment, either purposefully or, or inadvertently. And that can be an issue as well. Um, so it, it really is a negotiation, and there's no easy answer. And sometimes we can get the child in and do, do the work, and sometimes we, we can't. Um, oftentimes, each parent will have a therapist that they want the child to go see. Right. We actually have had a couple of kids that have come in over the years that are seeing two separate – the mom pick therapist <laughs> and the dad pick therapist. And each – you know, we want to avoid having the therapist they, taking one yeah. side or the other, but um, that can be complicated. Our, you know, our experiences is that we spend a lot of time working on engaging parents and educating them, and that I think most parents really want what's best for their child. And if you can really connect with that part of a parent who's concerned about the cost of the conflict or the cost of what this would mean for their child in the long term, it's often possible to navigate a solution that's acceptable to both parents, even if it means there's minimal participation 
communication from one parent and the other parent is bringing the child and is more engaged in the process. I just think it's really critical to not give up um, and because people can be in the heat of a conflict um, in, in a moment of stress and have very strong feelings or feel like they're being pushed into something. But if they can really set aside the marital issues and the divorce and focus on what's best for their child, I think we, we have gotten a lot of traction using that approach. Everyone who reads our Insights blog on itsovereasy.com or follows our Instagram feed knows that we believe in taking all the right steps to improve and sustain mental health and physical wellness. Lisa Nicholson commented on our Co-Parenting with an Asshole article on our blog saying, quote, I co-parent with a true loser. No job, no license, too many DUIs. Lives with mommy, is almost 35 and has no clue of what being an adult is like. How can you raise a child when you're a loser yourself? <laughs> but again, I can only control me. I really need to read this today. I saved it. Thank you. So what should we say to Lisa? How do you raise a child when allegedly one parent is a loser and one a winner? Or maybe more specifically, one isn't willing to look into what an organization like CARES is willing to help in terms of their child's anxiety? One issue may be also labeling your ex and and really kind of relegating him to this loser status, particularly if that's something that happens within earshot or even within vibe recognition, I'll call it, of your kids. Tell us a little bit about how that affects children, Patricia, please. Well, I, children are quite attuned to their parents, um, how their parents are feeling, their stress level, what they say, what they do, but also just, as you suggested, the vibe that they're sending off. If there's a lot of <clears throat> negative uh, kind of labeling of the other parent, it's really problematic for the child. It it's really goes to the same question of can, you, can we set aside our feelings about the person in the relationship and versus that person as a parent? And try to focus on things that might be strengths. Yes. That, that uh, you know, maybe they're limited in your view of, of your ex. However, there are probably things that um, your ex is bringing to the table as a parent that are really critical to your child's development and well-being. And if, we, if it, there's a possibility that those pieces can grow over time as the system changes and kind of redefines itself. So if it's possible to focus on those strengths, but at the very least, least to refrain from uh, negative labeling and negative talk about your partner or ex-partner in the child's presence is really important. I mean, I've been told by mental health professionals that children see themselves as one half of each of their parents. And so when you're sitting there smack talking the other parent, the kid not only changes or it affects their perception of how they see that parent, but how they see themselves. Well, if she thinks dad's a loser, does she think I'm a loser too? Because I'm half dad. And I think that really can have an effect on kids, their, their, their self-worth and, of course, their anxiety. And it may be something that over time um, you have to have awareness of how your child might remind you of yes, your ex. you look just like him. <laughs> Particularly as they age into adulthood. And we do see families who struggle with that as their uh, a mom whose son becomes older and suddenly seems much more uh, like her ex. It, it, can, it can trigger feelings that have nothing to do with the child. Right. So having that kind of monitoring and awareness that that can happen can be really helpful in stepping back and say, wait a minute, is this about the relationship and what the child's doing, or is this about reminders of things that happened long ago? Exactly. 
Something else for today's parents to think about is how these experiences in childhood and adolescence may affect our kids when they become adults and grow up to create their own relationships and their own marriages and families. Karina Wolf wrote about this for our friends at Bustle a couple of years ago, but this is a great article I've kept around. It's still super relevant. It's called Seven Surprising Ways Having Divorced Parents Can Affect Your Mental Health and Anxiety Levels. So these are the children of these divorces and how they grow up and and conduct their own relationships and stuff. And I think it's so interesting. In this article, um, Karina quotes Marissa Garacci, LMHC. Uh, she says, people divorce because their marriage isn't working. And for a child, this environment can create hypervigilance. This spills over into adult life and relationships, and it becomes how we make sense of the world. And oftentimes, children of divorced parents can have a victim mentality, not believing good things can or should happen to them, or they believe their life is destined to suck, which is really ties into the name of the podcast. But you had mentioned that earlier, John, that kids kind of grow up with this, the world is jaded, what's the point? Maybe some of these kids say, well, I'm never getting married. My parents had the most miserable divorce. I never want to fall in love. Do you see, particularly I say in adolescence, that this is something that we can we can contradict as they're going through the process? Yeah, I think we can. I think therapy is very important in helping um, change these kids, the adolescents, um, their views of themselves, their views of the world. That's the cognitive and cognitive behavior therapy is in some ways changing how they think, um, especially in situations where there is a lot of labeling going on and the parent, the child is led to believe by one parent that the other parent is a loser or has all these horrible attributes. Um, and the child may start internalizing some of these things or project these traits onto other potential romantic partners. So what's the point? I'm a loser, and anybody I'm going to go out with is going to be a loser. So what? just what's the point? That, that jaded, that hopelessness, that real negativity can be very difficult. So it's a very important target in treatment to recognize as early as possible. And two of the other things she mentions are people who then grow up to enjoy chaos or just thrive in chaos. I see a lot of that in my practice. They can't seem to quite let go and actually let the dust settle. And then the other one, as we've talked about, the stress from peacemaking. Having too much, you know, kind of revealed to you as you're going through this. I was a teenager when my parents went through it, and I was very well aware of what was happening in terms of extramarital relationships that one of my parents was having because the other one was telling me. And I remember thinking, I don't want to talk about that. I want to go to UCLA, Planned Parenthood, and get a diaphragm already. I'm 16. <laughs> so I definitely, I mean, I, I, I think we have evolved as a culture in terms of dealing with this, and I'm so happy that we have folks like you out there that are kind of helping families do that. Do you see that there is kind of a pendulum swing in the way that divorcing couples are handling how they do things in terms of their, their children? I see, and, and this, of course, is defined by who's seeking out treatment sure. and coming to us, but I see people really wanting to engage in co-parenting and think it through, not necessarily to be in the same room together, but really think about how they can maintain consistency. I feel like people are really um, internalizing that and also having greater attention to their own self-care and well-being, knowing how important that is, not only for themselves, but for their child, um, that if they're, if they're 
they're able to cope and do well and model that for the child, then that's really going to be important in the long-term outcomes. Put your own air mask on first before you help somebody else, folks. I do think that the... uh, the example of an adolescent who hears too much or even a, a school-aged child who knows too much and who's kind of pulled into what we call parentification, kind of roles where they're doing caregiving maybe for younger siblings or they're feeling responsible for their parents' well-being is really important to be attentive to. Uh, think about what, what you're sharing with your child, whether that's really developmentally appropriate, uh, appropriate for them. <laughs> and how uh, how comfortable they are with that information and is that going to be helpful for them in the long run because as you said 16 year olds are focused on a sports game or uh, birth yeah, control whether or not they're going to get an STD. their peers <laughs> and that's what they should be able to do right. and not be focused on taking care of their parent or taking care of the household or sort of holding things up the other the other issue with this is um, the pa- the child that goes back and forth and is to spy Yes, or the oh conveyor God. of information, and that's that's a that's a horrible responsibility to put on a child. And sometimes they're very young children that we see, right? And especially a child that may be anxious or traumatized or stressed or have mm-hmm. other times of pre-existing conditions that can be really really terrifying. And to follow up on what Patricia just said, um, the, the parenting is such an important part of anxiety, and. More than half of the cases that I see that come into our clinic, and I I always ask myself the question, if I had one hour with this family, would I spend it with the parent or with the child? And more often than not, I would spend it with the parent because parents play such an important role in either reinforcing the anxiety or teaching the kid reinforcing more brave behavior. Right. And in times of divorce, especially if a parent is very traumatized or anxious themselves, um, they can really inadvertently reinforce or strengthen um, or reward the child's anxious behaviors. And that can be very difficult. And all the individual therapy in the world, we have them for an hour a week, then they're going to go home and they're going to be living in a world where it's more anxiety listening or anxiety rewarding. You can avoid, you can stay home. Daddy's such a horrible person, come and cuddle up with me. And um, it can be it can be very difficult. Now I, I don't fault the parents because the parents are just doing what they do. There's no there's no instruction book for parents to, to to know how to do this sometimes, but it is something that we look out for and is really important. That is, I think it's so important. And again, you may not fault the parents, but I do think that the parents are need to educate themselves. There are the resources, folks. We have now gotten the availability of people doing this research, giving us these resources. Please, 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 if you're going through this, do put your children first. Think about how to take care of yourself so that you don't put this on them. Don't put them in the middle. This happens all the time, and I'm so thankful that we have FaceTime you know, or Skype so that parents, when they're not with their kids, can speak to the other, to the other parent. However, when you get one parent on the phone that says, I miss you so much, mommy's so lonely without you, and I just, then all of a sudden the kid feels terrible that they're with their other parent because mommy's alone, and what's she going to do tonight, and is she just going to be all by herself, and da, da. so talking to parents about how to really be upbeat about shared custody and being with both parents. I mean, there are kids that don't want to get in the car and go over to the other parent's house, and taking that opportunity not to go like, oh, I don't blame you, but saying like, no, no, it's going to be really good that you're going to be with dad and all those kind of things. 
part of it's fake it till you make it, but another part of it is really putting your kid first and making sure that he or she is feeling that you are supportive of the relationship with the other parent, correct? Yes, and I think there's also strategies that technology gives us to parent from afar. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, distance parenting strategies. It keeps the parent who's not there incorporated into the child's routine. Um, Maybe your spouse was really good at math, and now they're not there, and the child needs help with math homework because of things like Skype or FaceTime. Um, We can have that kind of contact even when you're not technically together. Absolutely. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to engage in keeping those connections. It's the the parent-child relationship is really at the core of the child's well-being and um, capabilities in terms of thriving. So we really want to focus on maintaining that and whatever pieces of it are positive and growing those. Absolutely. So, guys, our show isn't complete without someone getting interrogated. Today we've got two doctors to grill, John and Patricia. It's time for the Divorce Sucks interrogatories. So you can answer either one that wants, but you both have to answer. So what is your relationship status currently? Married. Married. You say that almost apologetically. (laughs) It's okay, Patricia. You can stay married. Okay. How long have you been married? Mm, 30 years. 30 years? No, in my world, that's like quite something. Congratulations. And John? 31. Oh, Oh, damn. He he beats you. Okay. How about your favorite breakup songs? John, I know you're going to tell me something that's going to date both of us. I I know. I I was trying to think of asking my kids what a a better one. I always go back to Eric Clapton. Uh Uh-huh. Have you ever loved a woman? Have you ever loved a woman? That's right. I think that's a good one. I don't think that dates you at all. I think there's plenty of listeners that can relate. Patricia, what do you got? Uh, I I choose the Indigo Girls Loves Recovery. Sit here in our storm and drink a toast to the slim chance of love's recovery. Nice. That's a positive possibility. And what would you say, Patricia, to cheer up a friend who's going Mm -hmm. through a breakup? Well, this is a tough one for me because I think the first thing to do is to take seriously and just listen to them. Sometimes listening and um, in a non-judgmental way is one of the most important things you can do to make someone feel better. But also, I think helping them uh, kind of focus on what is working, what is there for them and the supports that they have are important. I love it. Did you hear that, folks? The first part of that I love the most, which is just listen for a second. John? Um, I agree with Patricia listening and um, also not trying to push the narrative that we'll all be over soon and it will be for the better. But again, just letting the time that it's going to take time and you're just going to have to live with it. um, But it but it will get better. Not try to fix it. Time heals. Yes. As as mental health professionals, we both have this gene to try to fix everything. We want to fix things. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm I'm a problem solver, too. I get it. That's why I do what I do. We're we're all saving the world (laughs) one relationship at a time. What romantic comedy could you watch over and over again? Sleepless in Seattle. The best. <laughs> John? Well, this is a little embarrassing, but whenever this movie came on and my kids were little, we watched it no matter what. Princess Bride. Ah, <laughs> as you wish. Is he down the hill? I love it. 
parents out there, whether you're considering a divorce, already in the process, or your dissolution is behind you, your children are not the cause of your breakup. It's up to us as the adults in these situations to minimize the risks in our kids' lives, both physical and mental. John and Patricia, thank you for joining us on Divorce Sucks and sharing all of this incredibly valuable information with our listeners today. Thank you, Laura. This has been an amazing experience, and, and this is a, a, you're doing really great work to helping families out there, and we really appreciate it and the opportunity to be here. I agree. It's been a privilege to be here and have this conversation with you. I, it, it's been my privilege. Please tell people how they can reach you guys if they have questions or they may want to learn more about the UCLA Center for Child Anxiety Resilience Education, a.k.a. CARE Center. They can email us at info at carescenter, one word, dot UCLA dot edu. Or they can also check us out on our website, carecenter.ucla.edu. Got it. And you should also sign up for their newsletter, which has additional and more detailed information about children and adolescent anxiety. Just about every therapist or counselor or social worker is practiced in dealing with people going through difficult relationships, ending them, and confronting issues of custody and support. The important thing to acknowledge is that divorce is difficult for couples, and it's hard on the kids, but we can come out on the other side intact, and so can our children. Listen to me. Seriously, listen to me. Every week, we'll be right here on the Divorce Sucks podcast with fantastic experts like our respected guest today, Dr. John Piacentini and Patricia Lester, celebrities and people like you who have their own divorce adventures to share. <laughs> 